This episode of Geeks Gone to the Galaxy is brought to you by the novel Goddamn Killing Machines by David Agronov. John Shirley writes, Agronov is a razor-sharp writer, a storyteller with hard rock pacing, a magician of ideas. Learn more about Goddamn Killing Machines over at ClashBooks.com and DavidAgronov.blogspot.com. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 493 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Brent Spiner. He's an actor, comedian, and singer best known for playing the android Lieutenant Commander Data on Star Trek The Next Generation, and for playing Dr. Brackish Oaken in the 1996 film Independence Day. Brent recently reprised his role as Data in the first season of Star Trek Picard. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Fan Fiction, a fictionalized memoir in which Brent is stalked by an obsessed fan during the filming of Star Trek The Next Generation. And today's show is brought to you by the novel Goddamn Killing Machines by author and podcaster David Agronov. Agronov's short story collection Screams from a Dying World was nominated for a Wonderland Award, and his novella Punkupine Monsters of the Apocalypse was featured in the best bizarro fiction of the decade. And here's a description of goddamn killing machines. It says, Mercenaries, war criminals, interstellar travelers, killing machines. Nick Jarvis thought he'd escaped the life of violence. He and his squad of mercenaries, the notorious goddamn killing machines, were wanted for war crimes on multiple planets. After building a new life in the ruins of Earth, he had happily settled into being a father and husband. But the UN needs the killing machines for one last dangerous mission. The choice is simple for Jarvis. Rot in virtual reality prison, or roll the dice on a mission cloaked in secrecy for a full pardon. As the blood flows and the mission unfolds, Jarvis uncovers a truth that challenges his grip on sanity. From the author of Punk Rock Ghost Story and Ring of Fire, and co-host of the Dickheads Philip K. Dick podcast, comes a military science fiction adventure that puts the very nature of survival and reality in its crosshairs. So again, the book is called Goddamn Killing Machines by David Agronoff, and that's Agronoff spelled A-G-R-A-N-O-F-F. And you can learn more over at ClashBooks.com and DavidAgronoff.blogspot.com. And if you want to get the word out about your own book, movie, event, or product on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, you can learn more about that over at GeeksGuideShow.com slash ads. And now here's our interview with Brent Spiner. All right, so we're here with Brent Spiner. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Okay, and so your new book is called Fan Fiction. So how'd this book come about? Well, it, it kind of came about, I, I, you know, I'm not really sure how most books come about, but mine came about because a literary agent came to me and said, uh, I'd like you to write a book. And uh, he wanted me to write a memoir, and I wasn't uh, all that interested in writing a memoir, but I said, I can write, I have a story I'd like to write, and I can drop in some, uh, I can tie in some some things uh, from my life into it. And uh, he said, no, I really want you to write a memoir. And I said, well, then, bye. <laughs> and uh, he said, all right, well, let's see what you've got. So uh, my uh, collaborator, Jeannie Darston, and I put it together and uh, put together a proposal and he pitched it. And fortunately, St. Martin's Press uh, decided uh, they wanted me to write the book. So I did. Hmm. So why weren't you that interested in doing a memoir, just a straight memoir? I, I just feel like, you know, I read a lot of biographies and memoirs uh, almost exclusively. And uh, generally, I like to skip the first three chapters because I don't hmm. really care uh, about anybody's grandparents or their, uh, you know, where they were bar mitzvahed. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I just felt like my life, the most interesting things in my life uh, are the people I know. And... Um, I didn't want to write that book yet, but I, I don't really just, I don't think I have a life that really requires uh, a book. Yeah. You say in the, in the afterward, you say that you were having uh, dinner with Jonathan Ames. So, yeah. so tell us about that. Well, I had dinner with Jonathan Ames and uh, we had, we had worked together briefly on uh, the series blunt talk. Um, and so I wanted to know from a real novelist, 
uh, whether he thought there was a, a decent story here and it was worth my pursuing. So I, I asked him if he would have dinner and he said, yeah. And we went out and uh, I told him the story and he said, you got to write this. So that was enough for me. Hmm. And so do you have dinner with novelists a lot? Is that sort of a, a group of people that you're, uh, that you uh, socialize <laughs> that with? I, that I hang out with. Yeah. I, I've actually had a meal with Michael Chabon. Um, I, uh, I had dinner once with Dostoevsky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, in, in this case, uh, See, being, that, that would be good for a memoir if you had yeah, that. Maybe I'll do that next. <laughs> my, my dinner with, uh, Fyodor. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, now, you know, I just thought it would be wise to speak to a real writer, uh, before embarking on something that I hadn't done before and uh, get his take about whether it was a worthwhile project or not. Yeah. And you said that he connected you actually with, with your co-author, Jeannie Darst. Right. Uh, well, it was kind of um, a, a duality in that, in that uh, Jonathan recommended Jeannie to me, who had also written on Blunt Talk and, uh, and she was a novelist herself. And, uh, and the agent, uh, when he gave me uh, some names, I mean, the idea, I think, initially was that uh, the agent wanted me to hire a ghostwriter to, uh, he said, you know, you'll have a couple of meetings, have a few glasses of wine, and uh, then they'll write the, the book. And uh, and one of the people he recommended was Jeannie. And so it seemed a, kind of a fait accompli. I, I, uh, I met her, and, and uh, we got on very well and she understood the story completely. And, uh, but the process became a little different than I think what the agent had intended it to be because we really did collaborate. And uh, I, I, I don't know what a ghostwriter is exactly. I, I mean, I think it is what he described, um, but we, we basically uh, collaborated on this book. Mm -hmm. And was there anything in her background that particularly suited her? suited her to be the co-writer on a mem noir kind of book? Well, she had a really good sense of humor. And uh, that's, that was primary for me. Um, and she also understood that I wanted to write the book and that it wasn't going to be a job where I just handed it over to the story over to her and, and she would write the book. Uh, she was instrumental in uh, she operated as not just uh, a writer, but an editor. And um, she inspired me to write even more than, than I thought I could write. And, uh, um, you know, so and, and not to say that there aren't things in the book that are strictly hers. There are, there are, but uh, I, I think, you know, I like to look at it like, um, like she wrote the lyrics and I wrote the music. Mm -hmm. Had you uh, had you thought about writing a novel? Like, was that something that you thought of for a long time, or was it sort of a, or just something recent that you decided you wanted to do? Yeah, no, I never thought about it uh, really. I mean, I had this story, and I thought it might make an interesting film, but I never thought about doing it as a book uh, until this literary agent, uh, you know, came to me, and uh, and then once St. Martin's decided they wanted to do the book uh when i had to i didn't have a choice in it <laughs> and so yeah so the book is called fan fiction a mem noir inspired by true events so what is a mem noir well there's a you know what the, the book is a hybrid it's um it's a hybrid of a lot of things it's a it's a thriller it's a memoir it's a primarily a black comedy uh, it's a novel, it, yet there are things that are inspired by true events in it. Uh, there are real people in it, and then there are completely fictional people in it. And uh, so it just seemed to us that that was a, that was a good way to describe it as a memoir because, uh, because of the thriller aspect of it and the memoir aspect of it. Do you remember who came up with that term? Yeah, Jeannie did. That was completely hers. That was the point at which I thought, yeah, I, I want to work with you. <laughs> I can't think of ever having read a book like this where it's sort of a combination of a memoir with sort of a, a mystery style plot woven into it. Are there other, do you know, do you know of any other books like this? 
I, I don't really, because again, I don't really read much fiction, but, um, uh, uh, you know, and that's something that I think, uh, uh, some people have really enjoyed, uh, the, the sort of, um, departure from tradition in, in writing, in, in the style of the book. And then other people have felt, I, I just read a review of somebody, uh, who said, uh, no, you know, I, you should have, he should have just written a novel or he should have just written a memoir. And I'm kind of like, well, but I didn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly satisfied with the style of the piece uh, of it being this sort of uh, mashup of a lot of different things. Yeah, I, I found it really delightful. I mean, you know, the, the mystery plot, I was turning the pages, waiting to see what happened. And then it was interesting to get you know, get, get your perspective on what it was like to be an actor on Star Trek and how the, the makeup worked and what it was like hanging out backstage and going to conventions and, and all this kind of stuff. I thought it was, uh, you know, it hit a lot of my interests all, all in this one book. All wrapped into one. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Thank you, David. <laughs> so was it, uh, was it difficult? I mean, how, how long did it take you and, uh, sort of did you have to kind of like get up to speed on, on writing fiction or did it come pretty naturally to you? No, we wrote it. Uh, well, I would say it took about three days. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I wanted to see whether you would buy that. <laughs> no, I, I, we, we wrote probably over about nine months, something like that. I mean, what happened when we, we first started to get together, we would meet uh, at a restaurant in, in L.A. Uh, called the Little Dom's, little Italian restaurant. And, we would meet for breakfast and we'd talk about the story and different and how to outline it and how to, you know, write a proposal. And, um, and then the pandemic hit and we couldn't really meet in person. And, uh, so we did a lot of uh, FaceTiming and phone calls and, and, uh, yeah. So that's kind of the way it worked. And so that it took, it took about nine months of that sort of process. Yeah. And to talk about the, the, the Brent Spiner character, who's the main character in this book, kind of uh, what's he like and how is he different or similar to or different from you? Well, we, we definitely have the same name and <laughs> we have had some of the same experiences. Um, but, uh, you know, like I say early in the book, that none of it is really true. And um, even the parts that are inspired by true events are altered in and turned into a fictional situation. So the Brent in the book is not me. It's just Brent Spiner. I mean, I could have written the book and made it a, a completely different uh, sci-fi show that this actor worked on who had a completely different name, but I just didn't think it would be as much fun. And, um, and I enjoyed you know, again, I, it was, uh, it took place 30 years ago. And, uh, so it was fun for me to be young again and try to think as my young self. And, uh, but the character, I guess, you know, it just depends on who reads it. You know, it's, uh, again, I've read two different, uh, reviews today. One of them who said that he felt that the character was really egotistical then that I was egotistical. Uh, and then I read another one who said, so much humility in this guy. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's uh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And, and uh, you read things the way you want to read them. And so I just tried to make the character fun and uh, comical. And uh, as I did with everybody in the, in the book, men, women, people I know, people I don't know. I, I I was primarily trying to write a comedy. Right. And and when you're writing comedy, I mean the characters are sort of inevitably inevitably gonna be kind of worse people. You know, right. I mean Exactly. Exactly. Uh although I don't think I'm trying to think well, you know, other than well, I don't even want to give it away, but th there aren't any bad people in the book. I mean there there are people who are maybe small or, or, uh, selfish or petty or things like that. But, uh, I don't think anyone uh, with an exception of maybe one character is really bad. Right. But the, I, I mean, the Brent Spiner character, I mean, he's sort of, 
I mean, yeah. I would say he's sort of, you know, self-absorbed and neurotic and cowardly. And, you know, he, you're obviously not, um, you know, trying to, it's not a flattering picture. It's a sort of self-deprecating yeah, portrait. Exactly. But see, someone else read that and found that the character was egotistical. And, uh, and yeah, he is self-absorbed because he's telling the story. <laughs> I mean, he is, it, it is his story. So he is kind of, uh, He's the central character. And, um, uh, but yes, I, I, I think I tried to make him comical and not just a perfect person. And, uh, see, that's another thing when people write memoirs, they tend to make themselves look a whole lot better than they probably are. Mm hmm. Well, like there's a moment where the Patrick Stewart character says, you know, you know, I trained in martial arts during the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And, right. and, Brent, and Brent says, oh, well, thank you for offering to protect me. And Patrick says, oh, I'm not offering to protect you. I'm offering to maybe teach you some stuff, but I'm not, you know, going to put myself in the line of fire. You know, so it's stuff like that. It's like all the characters are a little bit more sort of, you know, selfish or, you know, right. than they would probably are in, in reality. Well, it's certainly more comical, although I don't know that Patrick would give his life for me necessarily, <laughs> uh, but he certainly would teach me to, to defend myself. I mean, you know, it was, it was my, uh, it was the character of Brent's presumption that he was willing to throw himself into <laughs> the line of fire. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted the guy to be, sort of i mean he's he's immature emotionally and frightened and uh and definitely self-absorbed yeah i saw you said you said that you showed the book to all the people all the real people in it to sort of make sure that they were okay with their portrayals yeah i mean i didn't want anyone to have anything that that they were uncomfortable with in the book and and to a person uh fortunately nobody had a problem with it mm -hmm. yeah that's great yeah. Um, well, they understood yeah, that it was comedy and, and that, that, that everybody, including me, was, was uh, you know, being portrayed in a comical way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, so yeah, so the, the premise of the story is that, yeah, there's this Brent Spiner and he's in the early days of Star Trek The Next Generation and he starts getting these threatening messages from a, what, you know, what appears to be a, a deranged fan. Mm -hmm. uh, who has styled himself after a character from this uh, episode called The Offspring. Right. And so I was just curious, why um, why did that episode in particular um, feature so prominently in the book? Uh, well, because, uh, well, you know, it, it just seemed like the ideal uh, episode to, to focus on. If I mean, not so much the episode as the character. Um, it seemed to make a lot of sense that, 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 whoever this person was who was uh, harassing me had all sorts of daddy issues and things like that. And I liked that aspect of it because then I could tie it to my own daddy issues uh, from my past and, uh, and to fear. And, and uh, so that's why that episode, I mean, it really it wouldn't have made a lot of sense if it was uh, any other episode. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that struck me is, you know, so there's a scene and it's at a Star Trek convention uh -huh. and the Brent character observes um, about these are about the Star Trek fans who are attending the convention. He says, so far, all of these folks are friendly, kind, smart and funny, exactly the people who, if I'm not mistaken, will one day inherit the Earth. Right. And I mean, from the vantage of 2021, obviously, we know the geeks have, have sort of had this cultural ascendancy. Um, right. So did you, but were you aware of that back in the early nineties or is that kind of like looking back retrospectively a little bit? Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's looking back retrospectively. Um, I couldn't have known that at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody long time ago said the meek will inherit the earth <laughs> and, uh, indeed they have. Um, and then there's also a, a scene that's said at Gene Roddenberry's funeral. Uh -huh. And, um, and it says, it strikes me, this is Brent, the character talking, it strikes me looking at the faces of his devotees, many dressed in Starfleet uniforms, that these are like his progeny, mourning the passing of their spiritual father. So it, it, it's, uh, you know, almost sounds like a, it was like a Star Trek religion, uh, at that, at that time. Right. 
Uh, well, you know, I don't think that's changed. I mean, I think um, I think it's kind of uh, not only not changed; it's 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 grown. Uh, I mean, I think there certainly are as many. I mean, well, I would say many, many more Star Trek fans now than there were then, and uh, uh, so. Yeah, I mean, wait, tell me the question again. I'm, I'm sure. I'm not sure what. Uh, like, did you feel like you were there at the birth of a religion, uh, being no. involved in Star Trek? No, I did, never felt it was a religion. Uh, but uh, and certainly, Gene never thought of it as a religion. Uh, anything but, because he was not a particularly religious guy. I, I don't think that would have uh, pleased him. But I think. You know, it has grown into a, a cultural phenomenon. And uh, and I think some people, I don't know that anybody actually uh, lives their life based on the teachings of Star Trek, but, uh, but certainly they come into play and they think, um, you know, because they're all very positive. And, uh, and I think there are people who plug into that. And there are a lot of things about Star Trek that are uh, really high-minded, um, particularly just sort of the general acceptance of everyone, uh, no matter what you look like or sound like or, you know, believe in, uh, there's acceptance. And uh, Gene's whole thing was, uh, you know, that in the future we'll celebrate the differences in one another. And... Uh, that would be really nice, wouldn't it? And, and it is, it, to, to a degree, there are people who do that. And I think they're, they're among our healthier people. Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked the portrayal of the Star Trek fans at the, at the funeral who, you know, are, are sort of very idealistic and, uh, and committed and everything. And then obviously, like, you have the, the stalkerish kind of fan activity, which is, you know, negative or unhealthy. Right. And I was just curious, do you, um, do you have any thoughts about what makes fandom healthy or unhealthy? Like in going well, in those two different directions? You know what? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a two edged sword, really a double edged sword that, um, I mean, you know, like affection can cross a line and become obsession. And I think that's when it becomes problematic, but in general, I would say the majority of the fans of, of, all of the Star Treks, not just me, uh, but all of the Star Trek shows is a very healthy thing because they like the values that are presented in Star Trek. You know, there's always a line that can be crossed. In fact, in the book, uh, I, I wanted to present myself as a fan who crossed a line as well uh, because I think a fandom uh, fandom and the two of the two of the uh, themes I was dealing with or trying to deal with were fear and fandom, and I think both of those things are common denominators to all people. We all experience fear that may be the common denominator, and the fact that we all admire or hold someone in high regard uh, is also i think common to everybody. Yeah. I mean, one thing I've noticed, I, I feel like in terms of phantom being healthy or unhealthy is I feel like it's better when people come to something with the attitude of, you know, I want to like this, you know, I'm going to give this a chance. I'm not coming here to trash it. Right. Um, and there's like, there, I feel like there's a lot of YouTube channels or whatever, where it's just like their whole purpose is just like, I want to hate this. I want to stoke outrage and express that. And I feel like that's really unhealthy. Well, yeah, but you know what? Social networks in general have provided people with a platform <laughs> to be uh, as as awful as they can possibly be because they can also do it anonymously. There's no, you know, uh, some of the things that people say on social network, you know, they would never say that to your face. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, the, the, there is that aspect, but I don't think that's part of fandom, really. I think that's just part of human meanness. Yeah. Yeah, and also like the the sort of the sense of entitlement, I, I feel like is another big sort of red flag when people have this attitude of like not just like oh I was disappointed that they did this, but like I deserve or I, I'm I'm entitled to it to having it my way. 
Right, right. And I'm entitled to uh, inserting myself into your life in some way, you know, uh, when that's, it's really only by invitation. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, so so you mentioned fear there, and I wanted to read this part, which I thought was really interesting um, in the book. The character says, maybe that's why I became an actor. I didn't want to feel afraid anymore. I wanted to feel loved by the world. I thought being loved meant being safe. And so this is a character early or early in their life. And so, you know, with all your experience now with celebrity and and everything, what would you say to someone who was going who is aiming at celebrity in order to feel loved and feel safe and all of that? Well, you know, I would say uh, be cautious and, and uh, step back because you, you, you very possibly will be loved by a lot of people, but you'll be resented and you'll be hated and you'll be, you know, uh, there's this sort of weird uh, thing that, that I think sometimes when you put people on a pedestal, it's a really uh, fulfilling experience to put someone on a pedestal, but it's even better to knock them off of that pedestal once you put them on it. So I would say don't take it too seriously. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it, 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 in most cases it's not particularly real. It's just um, it's it, you know in, in my case, for example, I think the fans, a lot of the fans that I have. Uh, and I hear from a lot of people on social network who um, feel they have a personal sort of connection to me. Uh, I, I don't think it's really me necessarily. I think it's data, really. And uh, I think that in sense of entitlement is the result of, of, of having played a character that was accessible and and accessible to all beings without judgment. And that's really attractive. Uh, and, and so I don't think it's really about me so much. I mean, I, I yeah, there are people who uh, look at the body of my work and go, yeah, I really, uh, you know, appreciate the work you've done. And that's hugely satisfying. Uh, but I don't need more than that. Uh, I don't think anyone does really. Mm-hmm. Like there's a part in the book where uh, there, I assume this is a real event where Patrick Stewart has given a, a sort of one man show of a Christmas Carol, and yeah, he as that. yeah, and, and as the audience is all applauding, there's there's a person Roger Rees, and he says he's, he's he's standing next to Brent, and he says so much love, so much hate, right? Uh, is that- well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I don't know that if you know who Roger Reese was. I mean, I mentioned he was on Cheers. Uh, he played Robin Colcourt on Cheers, and but he was a brilliant actor. Uh, he he was the original Nicholas Nickleby, and uh, just a fantastic guy and a great actor. And he was a friend of Patrick's, and indeed he was sitting next to me at one of the performances of Christmas Carol, and and that's exactly what he said. Uh, and. Uh, I remembered it as I was writing the book because of, uh, because of what was happening to my character in the book. It seemed to land even more. And there's so, there's so much hate. That's just the, that's jealousy or, or what, what is the, what well, is the hatred toward that? You know, uh, it's this weird thing. It's not just fans. It's, it's humanity. I think, um, to uh, uh i don't know i don't know what it is it's like like you love someone and then you hate that person because you love them so much you know it's like somehow they've they've taken control of you in some way i mean i don't, I don't want to get too philosophical about it because i didn't say it roger did but uh and i used it as a, a reference to what was happening to my character in the book. Uh, so I, 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 I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but there is, there is an element of truth in it. I think of uh, if you love someone so much, you're bound to uh, disappoint them as well. And, and that creates negative feeling towards a person that is lo- loved. I think that's that's really interesting. It's kind of like, you know, we think of love and hate as being opposites, but in a way, 
the opposite of an intense emotion is just a lack of emotion or, you know, a lack of caring. And right. once you inspire intensity of emotion, that yes. can easily flip from love to hate. That that's, yeah. Exactly. Because of expectation and, and the, the disappointment of that expectation. I mean, for example, David, uh, when we started doing this interview, I thought, you know, I really like this guy. And now all of a sudden I find myself hating you. <laughs> I don't know why, but I guess you've let me down in some way. All right, well, we've got another 30 minutes, so hopefully oh, I can okay. flip you back before the yeah, end. You can have to redeem yourself. <laughs> um, so I, I listened to your interview uh, that you did on the Labyrinths podcast with Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so interesting what you said because you were saying that um, – so Amanda Knox has this problem that there's this version of her that exists in the public mind that's much worse than the person that she actually is. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that there's this version of you that exists in the public mind, data, that's much better than you actually are. Right. And so, so again, it sounds like opposites, but it's, in a way it's the same thing because you both at some level want to be seen for who you really are. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I thought that was such an interesting that there's sort of two sides of the same coin there. I did too. I did too. And uh, I mean, obviously, Amanda's got a, a, a much uh, more dramatic story, life story than I've had. But uh, but it did seem to illustrate that the kind of both sides of that coin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and that goes back to people. I think uh, not everyone, but certainly, but but some people relating to me as if I am data and I can't possibly live up to that. Yeah. I mean, you do say that the, or I was the Brent character in the book does say that he kind of like does a, like what would data do thing where he, if yeah. he's getting nervous or panicking, he sort of tries to channel that, that right. hyper rational persona. Yes. Well, yeah, he does say that, but it doesn't work out that well for him. <laughs> He can't hang on to that for very long because uh, life keeps getting in the way. Hmm. I mean, is that something that you've you've done or tried to do is sort of, you know, after seven years or whatever of being data, mm-hmm. are you able to tap into that at all? No, uh, <laughs> I wish I could. But no, data is a completely separate character from me. And I think the, the thing that most, uh, you know, the thing that compares me most to data is basically that we look alike and sound alike or to a degree. Um, I mean, I use contractions, but, you know, <laughs> but generally it's my voice and my face. And um, otherwise he's a creation and not just my creation. He's a, he's a collaboration of a lot of writers and directors and uh, producers and, and, uh, and other actors as well who, who, you know, I would bounce off of. So, uh, no, nah, I, I don't, I don't uh, think of myself as data at all. I think of myself kind of really as me. Because <laughs> one idea I've had that I think that they should do for a show is that, you know, in, in, you had Spock and Data, who are both characters who are uh, logical and mm-hmm. who need to learn to be more emotional over the course of the series. And right. I think it would be, I'm very, I'm very into, uh, you know, rationalism and critical thinking and all that kind of stuff. And I think it would be interesting if they were to have a character who is very emotional and has to learn to be more calm and more logical over the course Mm -hmm. of the series. Well, you know, kind of in a way, Laura was that, um, unfortunately though, his emotional output was mainly negative and, uh, but I think he would have been a, a, a lot more tolerable if he could control his emotions. But you're right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just think it would be like good for kids and stuff to have a, you know, a role model of, um, you know, controlling your emotions and using logic and reason and all that. Well, I think you're right, but it could get dangerous too because um, emotions are good, and uh, you you want to be in touch with your emotions. You know, if it's a balance, it's really the balance of uh, the complete being is someone who can. Uh, be emotionally available and uh, access, uh, you know, reason, uh, you know, when when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about why you wanted to include Oliver Sacks as a character in this book, because that sort of ties into that. Well, uh, you know what? In general, David, I, I've been really reluctant and will remain so to, to, to kind of say, well, this really happened and that 
didn't happen. Um, but I will tell you this, that uh, Oliver Sacks actually did come to my trailer and uh, knock on the door and say, uh, can I come in? And uh, the conversation we had was not the conversation that we had particularly. Some of it was, but uh, I, I, to be honest, and, and I'm ashamed to say, I didn't know who he was at the time. And um, I subsequently found out big time who he was. Hmm. But, uh, but he just came in and we had a conversation and he talked to me about the, his patients and their, uh, their identification with data and how he felt that was helpful for him in, in his work. So that's how he made it into the book. Right. And these are patients with autism and Asperger's who, right. you know, identify with data's, you know, lack of social awareness and, um, and struggle. Sort of his struggle to understand emotion and, uh, just what that means and, and, and feeling like an outsider as well, uh, feeling out of touch with the rest of, with everyone around you. And, uh, I have to say that's that that became one of the most rewarding things about doing the show when I found that out. Uh, I mean, Dr. Sachs told me about it years before, but I didn't really put it together because I didn't quite understand it at the time. And uh, since you know, in the years that I started doing conventions and meeting a lot of people one on one, uh, I've had so many kids who've come up to my table and said, I was, uh, growing up, I had, you know, I have Asperger's or I've had, you know, somewhere on the spectrum or whatever. And, uh, data was the character I could identify with on television. And that's been so meaningful to me. And really, if I had known about it in full, if I'd really understood it at the time, I probably would have pushed the uh, writers to, to, to write towards that more. And and I probably would have blown the whole thing. So it's better that I didn't understand because uh, I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, no, that's that's so great. Um, could you also talk about why you wanted to include Ronald Reagan as a character well, in the book? Well, again, you know, not to give away anything, but he actually came to the set. And uh, he came to the set with uh, his very best friend, A.C. Lyles, who was – we. we thought of as the goodwill ambassador of Paramount. He was a wonderful guy who we all knew. Uh, he was the fixture at Paramount from, I guess, the 30s on. Uh, he'd been a, AC had been a, uh, he, he was Adolf Zucker who ran the studio. He was his office boy initially. And uh, then he became uh, a publicist on, on the lot. And then he became a producer. And he produced a lot of Westerns. Uh, at a time, B Westerns, at a time when the when Paramount was having a hard time staying afloat. And those B Westerns, uh, pretty much saved Paramount. And a lot of them starred DeForest Kelly. And, uh, uh, so anyway, but, but Reagan was his best friend and, and, um, he brought him to the set one day to, to, you know, visit us and have a look around. And what happened that day? is not what's in the book. It was a whole different scenario. Hmm. He did indeed come to the set. I mean, what happens in the book is, is Reagan talks about how humanity could be united by an alien threat. Right. Could you talk about why you wanted to have him say that? No, I mean, uh, you know, it just seemed, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I wanted him to say that, uh, particularly, um, I mean, the event really was the thing. The fact that he came to the set was kind of amazing. And, uh, and the uh, part of it that's true was that he looked fantastic. <laughs> uh, he really did. He was out of office already, but he walked through the door and he looked fantastic. Uh, he, he was elegant and he also had this, uh, and this isn't in the book, but, he um he he had this amazing ability that i don't think many people know about but uh I, a friend of mine who uh had met him years earlier has a photograph of himself and reagan and my friend is about 
five foot six and Reagan was about six two. And in the photo, they're exactly the same height. And I have a photo of myself and uh, President Reagan, and we're the same height, even though I'm 5'10". And uh, I think he was kind of like, it's not the word, he wouldn't be called a zealot, but he was a body shifter. He could he could actually become whatever size the person he was standing next to was. Incredible skill. I think that's how he got to be president. <laughs> Huh, that's really interesting. I mean, this thing about uh, humanity uniting against aliens is apparently something Reagan actually said. It's from a, a speech before the United Nations. Oh, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Do you remember how you did you already know about that or did that sort of did you come across that while you're writing the book or? I think we came across that writing the book. I mean, that may have actually been Jeannie's. Uh, she may have found that. And uh-huh. said, "Oh, well, isn't this interesting?" And then we I took off from there. Yeah, I mean, it fits it fits so perfectly in a, a it, book about Star Trek and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I thought was funny is there's this character. Uh, I think it's Ken the Mailman. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's a part where the Brent character says, "I'm sure he's seen more episodes of my show than I have." Yeah, and I'd imagine that's a pretty common experience for you right given how hardcore so many star trek fans are that they just know so much more about it than than you could ever possibly know oh absolutely there's no question about it i mean i I, you know we were working 16 hours a day most of the time 10 months out of the year and uh so you know when i had read the scripts i'd memorized the, the lines and then we were into the next episode. And so it never, after the first few, I, I think I watched maybe the first 10 and just to kind of get a feel for the show and what was going on. And after that, I didn't really feel it was uh, time effective to watch it because I had already spent so much time in my day. I'd been data 16 hours a day. I didn't really need to spend my off time <laughs> yeah. watching, watching the thing I'd already read. I knew how they all turned out. Um, it's funny. I did a thing, um, last weekend at the Skirball Center here in LA. Uh, they were having, it's a museum and they're having a, a whole retrospective of Star Trek. And they asked me if I would come because they were screening Measure of a Man. And, uh, so, uh, a gentleman by the name of Scott Mance, who kind of put it together, he's a writer and a, a critic. And he, uh, he contacted me. He said, I know this episode means a lot to you and I'd love it if you'd come and talk about it. And I said, well, I'm happy to come, but, uh, I have to be transparent and tell you, I've never seen it. And, uh, so I came in early and watched the show with everybody else. So I would at least be semi articulate. I can, I can understand why he thought that though, because there is stuff on the internet where it says that you've named it as one of your favorite episodes. So is that just, uh, that, Where did that come from? Well, that was the doing of it. I mean, it seemed to me a quintessential Star Trek while we were doing it. I had read it, uh, certainly, um, and I knew what the episode was. I just hadn't seen it in case, you know, there were specifics. And uh, I, and there were. There were things I had completely forgotten about. But uh, I do recall uh, while we were doing it, it seemed uh, – it seemed really good stuff. And, you know, I mean, we, we did 26 episodes a season. And so I think we averaged somewhere around five or six really good episodes out of those 26 and maybe another, you know, 15 pretty good episodes and then some that were not so good. Uh, but that one really stood out right, jumped right off the page that this is a really well thought out story by a writer named Melinda Snodgrass, who knocked it out of the park. I thought that's great. Yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic episode. And actually, uh, Melinda's been on the show a couple of times, and I've gotten to know her pretty well. Um, oh. And and yeah, it's uh, it was it's been great meeting her. And just it's yeah, it's everyone. If you haven't seen Measure of a Man, it's uh, it's such a great story. Well, it does. It raises a lot of really interesting issues that are becoming more and more interesting as time goes on. It was very pressing of her to write that piece, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. At the uh, in the book, the at the Gene Roddenberry funeral, the mm-hmm. um, the the Star Trek fans they have their their sort of holy trinity of science fiction writers, and one of one of whom is Shakespeare. 
Yeah. Right. They say they like they like to think of Shakespeare as the first great sci-fi writer, and I was just curious what you think about that because uh, I'm always saying like Shakespeare is like a fantasy writer. I mean, his plays are full of ghosts and prophecies and oh, sure. you know, witches and all this kind of stuff. Right, and and uh, characters like uh, I mean, the Tempest is well, the Tempest is uh, Forbidden Planet, right? Uh, the movie Forbidden Planet with Walter Pidgeon and Leslie Nielsen. Uh, is and Robbie the robot is based on the Tempest, and uh, I, I think that that was really the reference in the book uh, that the characters like Caliban and Ariel are uh, otherworldly. Yeah, and and it always just sort of I, I I always found it so strange that I would have teachers in in high school and stuff, and they would say, you know. Oh, science fiction and fantasy, that's not real literature. You should be reading Shakespeare. And it's like, well, wait, Shakespeare is fantasy. I mean, right. a lot of it. Can be. Certainly, even his histories are fantasy. You know, they're not exactly what happened. Uh, but uh, I don't know. There's, I think there's this... Uh, I, I think it's going away, frankly, because I think sci-fi could not be more popular But uh, today. But there's sort of a... Um, aristocratic um, poo-pooing of sci-fi that I think you got to read between the lines. You know, it's, it's really the ability to comment on the time we live in from perspective of, you know, light years away. Yeah. I mean, in one of these interviews I watched, you said that you think that Star Trek is the great American epic. Yeah. Well, I think it is. I mean, look, uh, it's been 55 years that the show's been on the air uh, in one form or another. And, um, or if not on the air, certainly in the zeitgeist. And uh, I don't know, how old are you, David? I'm 43. Okay. So, you know, uh, Star Trek was already well-established before you were born. And it's still going very strong. I mean, there are, you know, a number of, of Star Trek shows currently on the air. And, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it is the great American epic. It just goes on and on and on, and I don't think it'll ever come to an end. Yeah, I certainly hope not. I mean, that's kind of what I what I asked about religion earlier, because I could see it, you know, yeah. hundreds of years people, you know, have this sort of, um, you know, very mythologized view of Gene Roddenberry and, you know, oh, William Shatner and all this stuff. I mean, that they do become these sort of, Icon, you know, cultural icons for for centuries to come. I mean, I, I hope so. That's, I think that's likely. I mean, and I think maybe maybe just stopping short of religion. You know, uh, just uh, it's a, it's a philosophy more than a religion, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are no gods. Uh, <laughs> you know, who, who've worked on Star Trek? Uh, really, just really some really smart people and some really talented people, and. Uh, and and so I don't I don't think it's really a, a qualified religion, uh, but uh, but it is a I think a qualified philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So one of these things in the book is that um, uh, there's this part where Patrick Stewart gets a lot of fan mail, and the 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 mail person says he's only 14 months behind on answering it. And I would yeah. not have thought it would be possible to even to try to answer all the fan mail. So I was just curious what, what, what was actually the situation with the, with answering those fan letters? Oh, we, well, when we were doing the series, it, it was a lot more accessible then because, uh, we had a mail room and they would send it to the mail room in Par at Paramount. And then the mail guy would show up with buckets of mail, literally buckets of mail. And, um, uh, I don't know about every, anybody else, but I, I had somebody who, you know, I would have to visit uh, once or twice a week and, and work on my fan mail with them. That became kind of, uh, well, you know, again, uh, uh, social networks have kind of made it shorthand now um, for someone to say, I like your work or, you know, whatever, uh, or I hate you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Or I want to kill you, <laughs> you know, but uh, but in, it, it, I think it kind of ended the the real glory days of fan mail of handwritten mail on letters uh, somewhere around the time when 
There was uh, appearing appearances of anthrax in envelopes and things like that. Yeah. And it became kind of like, uh, you don't really want to open these envelopes anymore because I don't know what's in them. But so you were reading and answering all those letters or? I'm trying to. Wow. Yeah. And that just seems like such a, yeah, like the, that you're filming 16 hours a day or something and doing all the makeup and also answering all the fan letters. I mean, it just sounds like an, a really, um, you know, all-consuming sort of well, thing. It, it was. It was. I mean, obviously, the, the letters that, that got, uh, you know, our, our real attention generally were the ones that had self-addressed stamped envelopes and were just asking for a picture to be signed and sent back. Um, that's what I think primarily we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. You mentioned that you earlier that you uh, you've been reading the reviews of this book. Is there any any other uh, anything else about the response to the book that's kind of stood out to you? Uh, you know, just uh, just the, the sort of point of view that is that is uh, personal, you know, that that uh, and, and I was aware as an actor, you know, I've been I've been subject to criticism, public criticism for as long as I've been acting. And um, so I'm kind of used to it. And I, I had full anticipation that some people would like it and some people wouldn't. Um, but I find it still peculiar to read somebody say, this isn't what I thought it would be or what I wanted it to be. And because then I go, well, sorry. I, 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 you know, I, but I wrote what I wanted to write. And if you didn't like it, that's totally fair. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, to be honest with you, the, the large majority of it, thankfully has been positive. So, uh, but I don't take it seriously one way or the other. I mean, it's just interesting. I mean, do any of those positive responses stand out in your mind? Uh, let me see. I think someone said this is the greatest book I've ever read. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? I'll tell you one, uh, like, uh, there was one critic who said, uh, you know, this is a really fun book. I've really enjoyed it, which was, again, my intent was to write something entertaining. That's sort of what I do. And, um, uh, he says, is it great literature? No, but it's a really fun read. And, and I thought, well, you know, I, I, and I mentioned this, that I really worked hard to get a white whale into the script, into the book, but I just couldn't figure out where to put it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I, I, you know, I've, I've been very pleased by a lot of the response to it. It's been really rewarding to have people say that they enjoyed it and it was a fun ride and that's what it was supposed to be. You need a board that's like uh, with this, with fan fiction, Brent Spiner has outdone his friend and contemporary Dostoevsky. <laughs> exactly. Or, or I just need a blurb from Dostoevsky, <laughs> you know, saying, you know, I, I, I couldn't have done this if I tried. <laughs> yeah. So I, I read the book, you know, I read the hardcover, um, but as I was doing research last night, I noticed that the audiobook is actually performed by the full cast. And I was like, oh, if I had known that, I probably would have listened to the audiobook because that just, that just sounds amazing. Well, you should listen to it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's not that long, you know, it's not a long book. And if you've got a, a, a you know, a few long drives to make somewhere, it's a really fun audiobook to listen to because of, the appearances of my friends and uh, and the other actors who were on it and the production that was done by the producer of the book that I thought she did a terrific job. Was it a thing where you all came in individually and read your lines or was there any, any people uh, to work bouncing lines off each other? Well, you know, I, I mean, obviously I read most of it because it's in first person and um, it's first person in dialogue. And when the dialogue occurred, uh, whenever we could, uh, I mean, Patrick came into the studio and we read together and uh, LeVar came in and Dorn came in. Uh, Jonathan was in and Jeannie were in, uh, they were in Maine. So we had to do it over the phone. And uh, Marina was in London. Oh, and, and Gates came in too. And, uh, but Marina was in London. So we did it over the phone, you know, intercontinentally. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely need to check that out. Cause yeah, cause I, um, like I told you, I mean, I, I did really enjoy the book. It's like, it's a super page turner. Um, and yeah, just all the insights you get into the life of an actor and, and the history of science fiction and all that stuff is great. Oh, thanks, um, David. I, I do think you'll enjoy the, the audio book. It's, it, it, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any other final thoughts or other projects that you want to let people know about? Uh, not really. I, can, can I ask you a question though? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, Amanda Knox's uh, interview that she and her husband uh, did with me, and um, and I asked them a question that I think was was I just wanted to know. And being that you're you're a little older than them, they're in their thirties. Uh, what did you say? You were forty seven. Forty three. Forty three. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's about. Uh, there's this feeling years ago I, I had that film uh, is sort of immortality in a way because it's there forever and it never goes away. And I asked them and I'm, I'll ask you, do you know who Spencer Tracy was? Uh, not really. I mean, I know the name, but I couldn't tell you. I heard yeah. you talk about him on some interviews that I listened to, but I, I couldn't tell you a lot about him. Yeah. I mean, no, it's interesting to me that, that, you know, uh, Spencer Tracy in the, certainly in the forties, fifties and on into the sixties and, and maybe in the seventies. I'm not sure. No, I think only into the sixties, uh, was probably regarded as the best actor in films. And, um, and here we are and, uh, a, a very intelligent 43 year old guy really doesn't know who he was. And, uh, um, do you know who uh, Clark Gable was? Uh, yeah, it, it's funny actually because um, you know there when uh, Conan O'Brien lost the Tonight Show, uh-huh. he he was really depressed, and one of his friends said to him, "All of this stuff, it's all fleeting." You know, yeah. people said Clark Gable was the face of the 20th century, and who talks about Clark Gable today? And that that's that's pretty much the main way I yeah. know about Clark Gable. Right, it's interesting because Clark Gable was known as the King. He was the king of motion pictures and the biggest star in motion movie star in motion pictures at that time. And, um, and so this idea of a film being immortality, it's really only immortality. If you're a, you know, died in the wolf film fanatic. Yeah. Yeah. That that's definitely true. I mean, you know, I, I studied uh, screenwriting at USC and it's mm-hmm. like a class with Irvin Kirshner Mm-hmm. And, you know, every week he would he would just say, you know, like, you've never heard of so-and-so. He was like the greatest you know, comedian of the 30s or something. And, and all of us are just like, no, we've sorry, we've never heard of him. Um, well, I have a lot of references in the book to films and actors and things like that, that that may just go right through people because they don't know who that was, you know, but hopefully they'll Google them and look them up and say, oh, well, OK, you know, I mean, I mentioned the film Laura in the book. Um, as a really great film noir, Otto Preminger directed this film uh, with Dana Andrews and uh, uh, Gene Tierney, neither of which I'm sure you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's just an excellent film noir, and it's a really great, uh, you know, detective story. And uh, and it, my hope is that people read that, then go look, let me see what that film is, and look it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, I listened also to your interview with Gates McFadden, um, mm-hmm. where you, the two of you talked a lot about all these, um, you know, all the f- physical, physical comedians and stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, we're both huge lovers. I mean, you know, Laurel and Hardy, right? Uh, no. I mean, I, I've heard my dad talk about him, and that's, wow, that's my. Fantastic. I mean, Laurel and Hardy were just genius. I mean, uh, Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy, they were geniuses. And their films really, really need to be seen. They're fantastic. Yeah. Well, maybe after this, after we wrap up this interview, I'll go on a on a a, a film binge. Well, then my um, work is done. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think most things, you know, just just sort of you know disappear. This is why I, I really think you need sort of some sort of community, you know, to. You know, why I think sort of Star Trek fandom, you know, this is why I think Star Trek might endure for centuries is because, you know, it's not just, oh, these are good movies, but you have this community passing it down from one generation to the next. And um, that's true. That's true. Well, you know, 
who knows, maybe we've, we've actually reached that immortality. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. I, I, Cause I mean, like, um, sometimes, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the characters that you think of as being timeless, you know, like Sherlock Holmes or right. James Bond or whatever, they're, they're only timeless really because succeeding generations of authors have used them. You know, that if you only had the original work by the original author, it would just fade away at some point, almost certainly. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. We're, we're, we're out of time here, but, um, yeah, I do. I do hope Star Trek uh, endures for centuries. I, you know, I think it will. And um, yeah, just thank, thanks so much, Brent, for taking the time to talk to me and and being interested in my opinion. Uh, you well, know, that's that's nice. Pleasure, David, and uh, all the best to you. And uh, hope we talk again one day. All right, yeah, it's been great. So we've been speaking with Brent Spiner about his new book, Fan Fiction. So, Brent, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Brent Spiner for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. I also want to thank David Agronoff for sponsoring today's show. Check out his novel Goddamn Killing Machines over at clashbooks.com and davidagronoff.blogspot.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, Tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.